0: This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. And as they're making their way out, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Please open it to the book of Galatians again. This morning, our focus will be chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Even though I'm going to read both paragraphs Uh, we really won't get through verse 16 today that'll be the kind of where we will put a a, a semicolon and pick up next week because this is a very rich passage Um, and I don't want to rush through it for that reason so we'll slow down just a little bit and probably spend two weeks in dealing with verses 15 through 21 as you're turning there, I wanted to give you an update on my daughter, Emma. I haven't been able to in the last few weeks. Emma is still doing well. Whatever she was struggling with in the spring seems to have cleared up, so her breathing is, is much better, and for that we are thankful. We're still seeing just small things that seem, I don't it would be easy to overlook. For example, for some time now, Emma has had control of her head, able to say yes or no to us very clearly um, and moving her head on her own to position it on her pillow so she's comfortable. But in therapy this week, one of the therapists noticed that Emma was moving in her, her head in a way she hadn't, and that is kind of diagonally. And to us, that seems no big deal. I mean, you move your head diagonally, but to them, that was a very big deal. That was a new thing. And one of the things we have learned through this entire journey is not to overlook the small thing. We all hunger for and look forward to those huge answer to prayers, and God does that. God is able to, but don't overlook the small things he's doing in your life today that are preparing you for that huge step, that are getting you ready for what he is about to do. So thank you for your prayers as we continue on in this journey. Uh, God's at work, and just as he is at work in Emma's life, he's at work in your life too. So maybe just pray for eyes to see those small things that God is doing. Let's dive in then to Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. When I get to verse 20, it's a verse that will probably resonate with you. It's a verse that probably is one of the best-known passages in the book of Galatians. and You'll know that when we get to it, but let's start at verse 15. But Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. The group of settlers that led the western expansion of the United States were certainly a hardy and courageous group. Even though the government had given them quarters of acres of land to live upon and to move into, it still took a lot of courage to leave the safety and security of the cities they inhabited and move into the unknown. But they quickly learned something that was very important. Those early settlers were best described as those that were self reliant. Believe they could make it on their own. That, that good American uh, philosophy of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. So, as they moved westward and began to inhabit the land that had been granted to them by the government, they always built their sod houses in the middle of the acreage, right in the middle. No one around them. And that way they could look out and they could see all that they owned. All the crops they had planted. But something began to go askew. Photographers would go out west and take pictures of these settlers. And they began to notice something. The men began to look, well, kind of crazy. Crazy. This this look on their face, their eyes kind of narrow. The the women were not much better. Their eyes were wide and, and hollow looking. And many of the children, they looked ghostly. What they discovered was that the isolation was tearing these families apart. Being alone was not good. And so to remedy it, When settlers went out, instead of building their houses in the middle of the acreage, they began building them at the corners where lots met one another. So there would be groups of at least four families there together. Because they soon learned that if they were to make it, they had to live in community, working together. In many ways, the same challenge is before the church today. Part of the American pathos is individualism. We do our own thing. We get by on our own. We we indeed follow the example of those early settlers and living lives that are are self-reliant. But to do so undermines the gift of God's grace and what he accomplished in Christ. And this is how it happens. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a part of community. It's not optional. To be saved is to be part of the people of God. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter addresses this very thing when he says, once you were not a people, and he's quoting Hosea, by the way. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Interesting that he doesn't focus on just the individual. He doesn't say, one time you were not saved, but now you are saved. He says, you are a people. And how did you become a people? By the mercy of God. This is consistent throughout all the scripture. Paul picks up on this theme himself. He doesn't use the word people. Instead, Paul uses the imagery of family. The moment you are saved, you become part of the family of God. Later we'll get to Galatians 4 where Paul wrote, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that. Now that's the conclusion. That's the result, the consequence. He redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. You are adopted into a family. When we are saved, it's not just about the fact that I am saved and I am now a Christian. It's about the truth that you are born again into the family of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a lot in his studies about the community of faith, believed in it so strongly that he was part of forming an underground seminary when the Nazis were taking a, taking a stronghold in Germany, an underground seminary where the students lived together and practiced community. He wrote in one of his works, "Christian Brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It's a reality. Created by God in Christ in which we may participate. It's not that we bring about the the community of faith. It's that the community of faith exists by God's work. And henceforth the challenges that are faced. We face the challenges of moving from thinking individually to community. Of thinking of, of others rather than ourselves. We face the challenge of moving, of taking care of others and being concerned for others rather than just thinking of and taking care of ourselves. And perhaps the greatest challenge is this moving from the pain of broken relationships to the healing of community. In fact, that's why many believers eschew being a part of a family of God, they've been hurt whether intentional or unintentional, by other Christians. And so as a result, they begin pulling away from the church thinking, I'm saved, it's just about Jesus and me, I don't need any other believers. And that's exactly what the devil wants. Many ways our lives are like a, a campfire. An ember that stays in the fire will remain red hot and glowing. But an ember that is removed from the flame will eventually flicker out and die. Now, there's nothing new under the sun. The challenges that we face today in becoming the reality that God has made us to be were challenges faced by the early church. That's what brought about the book of Galatians. The challenges the early church faced were often rooted in religion. As we have seen already in our study that according to the Torah, Jews... Did not eat with Gentiles. Their idolatry could rub off. They could influence the the righteous Jew not to live for God, so the Jews would withdraw from any fellowship. There were challenges to the gospel. That's the issue Paul is addressing. The issue of community brought up a challenge to the gospel because there were those from what was called the party of the circumcision that were coming in and saying, yes, you are saved by grace through faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but if you are to be a part of the people of God, you must be circumcised and you must follow the dietary guidelines in the scripture. Doing so proves you are a part of the family of God. And so Paul writes passionately to say that is wrong because adding anything to the gospel diminishes the gospel. The good news of the death of Jesus for our sins, his burial for our sins, his resurrection for our sins is sufficient for our forgiveness and the creation of a new community that is called the church. Now, in verses 11 through 14 of this chapter, Paul recorded the confrontation that he had with Peter. Now, remember, prior to this, there had been a meeting in Jerusalem, a meeting presided over by the three pillars of James, the half-brother of Jesus, John, and Peter himself. And those three pillars with the church in Jerusalem said, the gospel that Paul is preaching of salvation by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, in Christ alone, is true. That's it. That's the message. Only Paul just remembered the poor. Paul said, that's what I wanted to do. So then Peter takes a trip north to the Gentile metropolis of Antioch. And there, Peter is enjoying fellowship. He is going out to the local steakhouse with Gentiles. And he's enjoying it. And they're eating together. They're having desserts together. They're drinking coffee together. And he's saying, this is great. Until members of the circumcision party from Jerusalem came up. And when Peter saw them walk in the door, he walked out the back door quickly. He didn't want to be caught by this group that was saying you still had to follow the Torah. He did not want to be caught eating with the Gentiles. So Paul confronts Peter. and He confronts him very vigorously. And it's believed, and I happen to agree with this, that what is written in verses 15 through 21 contain the words that Paul shared with Peter. Because notice the we in verse 15 and 16, and even into 17, the plural, we ourselves are Jews. So I believe he is addressing Peter with this issue. Now, Galatians by many are referred to as a short version, or, or going back to my high school days, the cliff notes of the book of Romans. Romans is a, a dense theological treaty that deals with the doctrine of salvation, of being saved by faith. And some feel that Galatians is in miniature the truth taught in Romans. And I think that's true, but yet a little bit different also. You see the similarities in verse 16, for example. You see phrases in this one verse that are shared with Romans. Phrases like, faith in Jesus, justified in Christ, died to the law so that I might live to God. Now these are core foundational truths of our faith. But in each book there's a different application. Application. In Romans, the issue is, how are we saved from God's wrath? And Paul answers, how are we made right with God? How are we given eternal life? He answers, by faith in Christ, being justified with Christ. But in Galatians, the very same truths are addressed to the church. How does the gospel make us one people? What defines our life together? How can we, who come from different backgrounds, different situations, different challenges in life, truly be the community that God intends? And the answer to both Romans and Galatians is the same doctrine. The life we live is because we are justified by faith. Verses 15 and 16 draws this point out clearly. Notice that Paul starts with the division of the people. As I said, I believe he's addressing Peter and he's sharing what he said with the church at Galatia. We ourselves, in other words, Peter, you and I are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He goes back to the division that was taught in the Torah. According to the Torah, there are just two types of people Jews who are righteous and the people of God, and Gentiles who are not righteous. And not the people of God. And Paul says to Peter, that's the tradition we grew up with. That's what we knew. But notice verse 16 begins with a conjunction, yet. So there's a difference now. That's that's true. We're born Jews by birth, not Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That word yet, that conjunction indicates a change that has taken place. A change that is brought about by the one word justified. Now the word justified is emphasized in this verse. You'll see it three times. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Three times in a short, or a, a middle sized sentence, Paul comes to emphasize this truth. This is clearly an important word. To be justified is is like holding up a diamond and looking at different facets. Justified has with it a judicial meaning. See, to be justified means to be declared not guilty. It's recognizing that we are guilty before God, but by faith in Christ, we are declared not guilty. On the day we stand in front of the judge of the universe, everyone who has had faith in Jesus Christ is proclaimed innocent by his blood. There's another facet of that diamond, and it's relational. To be justified means to be made right. Not just in a judicial sense, but in a relational sense also. Remember, we by nature are enemies of God. We do our own thing. We disregard Him. We are the prodigal who has left and gone into the far country. And so God in His grace reconciles us to Himself so that on that day of judgment, not only will the judge proclaim us innocent by the blood of Christ, we will look up and see that that judge is our father and friend. That's the glorious good news of the gospel and justified also carries with it the idea of being made righteous the idea that it is the righteousness of jesus applied to us that gives us right standing with god so the question then is how do these things happen how are you and i declared innocent how are you and i made right with our with god how are you and I made righteous? Well, the first thing Paul says is, it is not by works of the law. Now, the, immediate, or the immediate, immediate meaning of that is the Torah. Not by following the rules and regulations that are given in the Old Testament will you be justified. And you can even expand that to say, not by doing good works. Paul addresses that in Ephesians when he says, it's not by works we are saved, lest anyone should boast, but by the grace of God. If anything, the Old Testament, the Torah, is like an x-ray showing the brokenness in our bones where we have failed God. So now in this verse 16, Paul does a very subtle, very subtle thing. Notice that he says at the very beginning, we know that a person. He didn't say we know that Gentiles... Are not justified by works, nor did he say, We know that Jews are not justified by works, but a person, all encompassing. Paul is teaching us that Jew and Gentile are both in the same boat. And that boat is sinking. And it doesn't matter if you are in a tuxedo sitting at the captain's table, the ship is sinking. And it doesn't matter if you're down in the hold of the ship, shoveling coal, wearing coveralls, the ship is sinking. Doesn't matter. Why? Because we are all sinners that cannot be saved by our works, by following the Torah, or by good deeds. The only way to be saved from God's justified judgments is by faith in Christ. We are not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, Which begs the question, what in the world is faith? It's something that we hear a lot and say a lot. I like our, how Alistair McGrath breaks it down. He says, think of faith in three stages. The first stage is where you believe, you hear, you know the facts. We could quote the facts of the gospel. Jesus died and rose from the dead. When you believe in him, you're saved. But the second thing he says is that we must trust that promise. And then the third thing is, we have to respond to that promise. The first two stages prepare the way for that final stage of trusting. He goes on with the analogy. He says, think of it like penicillin. Penicillin is a medicine that has saved millions of lives. Now, you may accept that penicillin exists. Somebody says to you, here are the facts about penicillin. It's a mold that can bring healing. Don't try to grow it at home but there it is. And you say, yeah, I hear that fact. You may even say, you know what? I believe it will work. I believe that penicillin can heal infections. But nothing will change unless you receive the drug yourself. You can say, I know of it. I think it works. But until you either get the shot or take the pill, that antibiotic will not be effective. Now, here's where the difference was. In Galatians, people were saying the sign you have faith is receiving circumcision and following the Torah. Paul is saying, no, the sign that you have had faith is, first of all, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that spirit dwelling within you will be demonstrated by how? Repentance. Turning to God. It will be demonstrated by love. Loving one another. It will be demonstrated by loving Jesus by following his commands. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, remember, those are not things we do to earn salvation. They are signs of a living faith. They demonstrate that we have believed. And notice that this is a faith not just in some ambiguous person but in Jesus Christ. In fact, notice how Paul emphasizes the title. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. And three times in this one verse, Jesus focuses that Jesus is the Messiah. Faith in Jesus Christ. We've also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. It is the belief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The one who will bring about redemption and set things right. He is the Messiah who will bring about the new creation. And he is the Messiah who creates the people of God. And that's why Paul argues that justification by faith is not just about you being saved. It is the basis for community. The ramifications of that are startling. There's a European theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. He was visiting a friend of his. A friend who pastors in Sandtown in Baltimore, Maryland. Now Sandtown is that part of Baltimore that is desperately poor and extremely dangerous. Miroslav was visiting his friend as they were walking through the inner city... The friend was talking about the things that were going on there. And his friend said, Miroslav, there is one powerful but untapped resource for renewing places like Sandtown. Miroslav says, what's that? His friend said, the doctrine of justification by faith. Now that shocked Miroslav. He was teaching theology at Yale and he said in my mind I'm thinking most of my colleagues have rejected the doctrine of justification by faith. Many even in the mainline liberal churches deny justification by faith. How in the world could a doctrine that many consider dead, which it's not by the way, be applied to social problems like poverty, violence, and hopelessness? Miroslav Volf reflected on this he said it came to him imagine for a moment that you have no job no money you live cut off by the from the rest of society in a world that is ruled by violence and poverty your skin is the wrong color and there's no hope that any of this would ever change And around you is a society that is governed by the iron law of achievement. Its goods are flaunted in front of you, but you are told every day that you are worthless because you have no way of achievement. You're a failure. You know that you'll continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you've not managed to achieve today. Your dignity becomes shattered. Your soul is enveloped in darkness and disrepair. And then you hear something amazing, something that tells you you matter and that even more than that, you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Now you are told that you have worth and value in God's eyes and you can be made right with God, not by your achievements because there are none, but because of God's grace Justified by sheer grace. The grace of God seeks to justify the unjust and brings about a change in society that is impacted by believers who are captured by the grace of God. This is not a dead doctrine. It is a doctrine that when it is proclaimed and practiced, changes communities. That's the power of justification by faith. Alone. So this morning I ask you, just in looking at this one verse, in what are you trusting to be made right with God? And if we say, I am trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, have you believed that? Is it demonstrated in your life? Are you touched and captured by the grace of God? If not, I ask you this morning to come and kneel at the kneeling bench or to take me by the hand either during the invitation or afterward and say, I want to know this grace because there is no other way we will stand a chance before God except by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Will you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, I thank you that your love is beyond comprehension And your grace is unfathomable. Lord, many of us have grown up, we have heard the the message of your amazing grace. We have heard the, the theological terminology of justified by faith. But Lord, this morning I'm praying that we will not just know this truth in our minds, but it will take root in our hearts. And we will become the embodiment of your people. We will be, your people, a community shaped by grace. A community who praises you for being justified by grace. And a community that demonstrates that in its relationships with one another. Father, grant this, we pray, to the glory of your name. Amen.